May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, we pray. You are our rock and our redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen. It's a delight to be with you today. And I just want to start by telling you a little bit about my, my history. I grew up on the plains of Kansas. It was a small town of McPherson, and I really grew up in the local Free Methodist Church. I mean, it was our second home. It was a strong community of loving people, and there I learned much about God and about prayer, like this simple prayer, God is great, God is good. Little did I realize at the time the theological profundity of these two ideas uttered in the same breath. God is great. God is good. So there was much good in this community, but in the Mac Free Methodist Church, we knew nothing of the liturgical church calendar. We celebrated Christmas and Easter, but I don't remember even hearing the words Advent or Ash Wednesday or Lent, And I certainly had no notion of this unknown territory called Epiphany. So it's been a rich journey for me to immerse myself in the church calendar and see how that calendar leads us to Jesus. Well, today is the fifth Sunday following the Feast of Epiphany. I think there's a slide that shows that. There we are. Yeah. And Epiphany is celebrated January 6th. Now, that's a date that unfortunately is stuck in our minds for other reasons. But it is truly the day of Epiphany, and that means we're in the season of Epiphany. And it's curious that some churches who follow a liturgical liturgical calendar still don't acknowledge this particular season. The weeks just kind of get lumped into a generic gap between Christmas and Easter. And you know what? There's a lot of Jesus that can get lost in that gap. Like everything from his birth to his death. (laughs) So what is Epiphany about? Well, the word means to show forth. And what is it showing forth or revealing? The short answer, Epiphany means making manifest or showing forth the glory of God, especially as revealed in Jesus. And our lectionary scriptures today, the psalm which we read together, Psalm 147, and parts of Isaiah 40 and Mark 1, which were just read so beautifully to us, these are all designed to show forth God's glory. As Fleming Rutledge says, Epiphany is designed to replace our minimalist notions of glory with the real thing designed to replace our minimalist notions of glory with the real thing. So what is this real thing of God's glory? Well, today, friends, we're barely going to scratch that surface, right? And I hope that as I share these reflections cobbled together from the scriptures, that my message on the real thing of God's glory 
is not as presumptuous as this that you might remember, some of you, from 1971. Some of us are old enough to remember. It's been named one of the most successful ad campaigns ever. And it was a good jingle. I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect... Now, don't sing along, because it'll get stuck in your brain. But I love the second, the second part. I like to buy the world a Coke and keep it company. It's the real thing, what the world wants today. Ah, sigh. A soft drink is the real thing. Well, today, as we look into the real thing of God's glory, let's keep in mind that our pondering, our exploring, is a lifelong quest for God's glory, not a slick slogan with a catchy tune. So let's look into the scriptures. We catch a glimpse of this real thing of God's glory in that first lectionary text as Isaiah 40 paints this vivid picture. Have you not known? Have you not heard? It is God who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. The other version said locusts. I'm not sure which I like better. God who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them like a tent to live in. God who brings princes to naught, makes the rulers of the earth as nothing. To whom then will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Yes, friends, God sits above and is above, great in power, stretching out the heavens like curtains, making princes like nothing. This is crazy stuff. Wonderfully hard to fathom. Because Isaiah's images point to something much more than what we mean when we use the word glory. Usually we mean fame and honor, like we say military glory or Olympic glory. We may even talk about the glory of a sunset. Beautiful. But all of that glory fades away. And with God... The glory is the opposite. It's eternal. It's above all. It's never failing. And did you catch it? We're the grasshoppers in comparison. This image begins to depict a little of that contrast between the all-glorious, powerful God and us. Because as grasshoppers, we are frail, temporary, small, and vulnerable Thank heavens, God's glory is so much beyond. And when we pause, and when we take in just a glimpse, just a sliver of this real thing, we're overwhelmed. I felt it this morning, even as we sang. Because God's glory prompts awe and praise. And our praise joins with all of heaven and all of creation in this doxology. Though our glory words may fall short, we don't worship alone. Think of that. We don't worship alone. I love how this somewhat unknown verse from the hymn, Oh, Worship the King, we just sang it. This verse depicts the real thing 
of God's glory. And I invite you to join with me. O measureless might, ineffable love, while angels delight to him you above, the humbler creation, though feeble, with true adoration shall lisp to your praise. Yeah, we're lisping grasshoppers. Mm-hmm. And yet we're joining with the angels. I wonder, might there be an epiphany for us today to pause in awe and glory? Well, secondly, God's glory and power can also prompt other responses. If God is so great, what difference does it make? What about the terrible suffering, the losses of so many, the deep wounds, the heavy sorrows in the war-torn world and in our hearts? Well, apparently the Israelites were feeling the same way because the prophet Isaiah asks them, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded. By my God. Isaiah's rhetorical question to them has a very good answer. The Israelites say this because they are in exile. They've been forcibly removed from their homeland. They've been stomped on by their Babylonian captors. And this has created an existential crisis for them as well. Because God isn't just transcendent to them. God is absent At least that's their sense at that point. And it doesn't make any sense that they're in exile. So they cry out with raw emotion, Yahweh, my way is hidden. Why don't you see me? Yahweh, my way is disregarded. Why don't you care? Lament spills out of anger, fear, and pain. And it may be that some of us coming to worship today may be carrying some of that. God, do you see me? And if so, why don't you use some of that glorious power to fix this? The real thing of God's glory makes space for us to cry out, to lament, to ask the hard questions. Friends, we don't have to hide. We can lament, and Yahweh is big enough, great enough. The raw truth of our grief, our anger, our fear, in no way diminishes God's glory. In fact, I think our minimalist notions hold us back. Because scripture is full of lament. There's a whole book called Lamentations, right? So it is good and it is right to bring our full selves, our vulnerable selves, the places others don't see, bring all of that to God. 
and I wonder, might there be an epiphany for us today to believe that our great, transcendent God makes space for our anger, our grief, and our lament? Well, thirdly, the psalmist at the end of chapter 147 that we just read together gives another insight into this real thing of God's glory. The passage says, His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor the spe- his pleasure in the speed of a runner. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope, in his steadfast love. The word here is chesed. Steadfast love. This Hebrew word appears 250 some times in the Old Testament, and it reveals the very core of God's character. In fact, the gospel is rooted in chesed. Maybe that's why it's so hard to translate the word. It's not just a feeling that God has for us. It's faithful, never-changing, covenant mercy, compassion, devoted love and action. I'm not sure even got all the words. So hard to translate because it's so incomprehensible. This is who God is. Chesed. So what's that look like for us to hope in this? this character of God, to trust in that. What if it might mean that God really isn't so interested in my high-functioning capacity? Maybe not so interested in my speed and my strength or my performance. But God delights, takes pleasure. (laughs) Somehow when I look to God's chesed, The real thing of God's glory is based in chesed, not in our capacities. So I wonder, might there be an epiphany for us today to trust more deeply God's goodness, God's chesed, rather than in the world's or our own conventional strength? Well, one more text, because as Christians, we believe God's glory is best revealed in Jesus. God becomes flesh. God enters our broken world. And somehow, in the incarnation, the transcendent glory becomes the eminent presence. And this short passage from the Gospel of Mark, we get to see just how accessible this God in Christ becomes. The text starts, as soon as they left the synagogue, this part of the text, I should say, as soon as they left, Jesus and the disciples, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John, and Simon's mother was sick in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Three short verses, but so much there. Just a few thoughts. One, the text says Jesus lifted her up. 
That word, lifted her up, is the same Greek word that Mark uses later for the resurrection. So we might think of a fever as no big thing. You know, take two aspirin and call me in the morning. But in Jesus' day, a fever could lead to death. And so this healing is a full display of God's glory. Secondly, the story is wedged between two public appearances. The part right before that we didn't read was Jesus' first public appearance, and it was an exorcism at the synagogue. And immediately it said his fame, his fame spread. And then right after this healing, we read about all this other healing that happens, and the whole city is at his door. But wedged in between, we have these three verses And Jesus leaves the public sphere and enters a private home. Because God's glory is not just about fanfare. Thirdly, this account centers an unnamed woman, ill with a fever. She's only known, she's only referenced here by her relationship to a man, her son-in-law. But God's glory comes to this unnamed, this little person with no status, no big role. And keep in mind that for a Jew to touch someone who is ill in that day would have meant that they themselves would have become unclean. But Jesus doesn't hesitate. He comes and takes her by the hand and lifts her up. He's willing to break the social codes to tenderly touch. Rembrandt sketches this private act of Jesus' tenderness, and you don't see any obvious glory here. No acclaim. No one shouting hallelujah. In fact, after she's healed, this unknown woman goes back to the unglamorous role she's had her whole life. So this first healing in the book of Mark shows God's glory because Jesus wasn't just a popular, big-named exorcist trying to impress. Jesus moves out of the public sphere to this unnamed one, suffering, one might say, a grasshopper. And this transcendent, all-powerful glory becomes intimate, intimate in a personal touch that involves risk. And that touch brings healing and new life, the goodness of God, God's chesed in Jesus, in the flesh. The real thing of God's glory comes to us, touches us, And lifts us up, thanks be to God. Recently, a dear friend, a widow, shared with me about her isolation. Though she may get an occasional hug, most of her life is devoid of physical contact. But for her birthday, someone, for some reason, gave her a massage. Now, that wasn't what she was used to. But she bravely went. And then it meant so much, she said. I just needed to be touched. 
Friends, I think we all need to be touched in tangible, wholesome ways. That's why we just passed the peace of Christ. And furthermore, we also need to know that our way is not hidden to God. We are not disregarded, even in our isolation. We can trust God's chesed, God's goodness to come. So I wonder, how do we not just talk about this, this real thing of God's glory? How do we know it? How do we experience it? Well, we can put up a chart that looks like this. God is great. God is good. This is all right, and it's helpful. But what's it look like in flesh and blood to live the truth that God's glory is great, big enough for my lament, and good, intimate enough to touch me? Well, I've been asking that ever since I read these texts, well before Christmas, And frankly, I've been just a little frustrated at not having the perfect example to bring to you. Ironically, in this same season of my life, I've been in the midst of some interpersonal tension and some underlying issues that, unbeknownst to me, have been brewing. Recently, those issues, as they often do, bubbled up and spilled out in living and not too pretty color. And it's been tough. It's been tough to sort out what's mine, what isn't mine, how do I engage with compassion, and of course, doing all that while juggling other demands, work, and trying to figure out how to write a sermon, right? But just a few days ago, I was in the midst of another one of these challenging conversations, and believe me, my mind was far from God's glory. (laughs) In fact, I was frustrated. I just wanted this to get over. We even decided to take a little break in the conversation and regroup. That was a good thing because somehow, when we came back, I became aware that not only was my heart rate a little elevated, my body temperature a little higher, but my jaw was tightly clenched. You know that feeling? And it hit me that I was in a powering through mode. Not really listening to the heart of the other. You know, I thought I'd heard it all before. And in that moment, I knew I needed in a deeper way God's chesed. I needed to trust, not in my strength, but in the all-powerful God seeing me right then, knowing and loving me right then in my arrogance, in my vulnerability. I couldn't put trust anymore in my abilities, but somehow that transforming, tough, chesed love of God became real, and the power dynamics shifted (laughs) Because the focus was no longer on being right or being persuasive. Somehow it was on God. God, I somehow sensed, was coming to me. Delighting in me as I looked to God. In spite of my feverish ways. 
God was touching, healing, and bringing new life. So friends, there really isn't a color-coded plan. But I pray that perhaps some epiphany, some showing forth of the mystery of God's glory becomes real, becomes real for me and for you. In the greatness of God, far beyond our imagination, big enough to handle our lament. And in God's chesed, in Jesus, coming to you, touching you, and lifting you up. Yeah, deep breath. So as we prepare now for the sacred time of communion, where we in humble adoration receive, somehow, we receive the body and blood of Jesus. I pray that the, trans, the transcendent glory of God, yeah, the transcendent glory of God, becomes a tangible, intimate, healing reality. The real thing. May it be so. Let's pause, can we? Just breathe. God, your glory breathes in the air, shines in the light, streams from the hills, descends to the plains, and sweetly distills in the dew and the rain, and somehow by your Holy Spirit in these gifts. So we give you thanks. And on the night when Jesus gave himself up for me, for us, for all of us, for me and you, <laughs> he took the bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat, and each time you do, do it in remembrance of me, and be fed by me. And when supper was over, in like manner he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of this, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins.
And each time you do, drink it in remembrance of me and be fed by me. So pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. May they they be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. Let's join together in praying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.